From the home of creative writing on the Internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. In New York, a glamorous woman wearing Manolo Blahniks has just glanced at her Cartier wristwatch and told me it's 3 p.m. In a secret knitting den at a location I'm not permitted to identify, there's just time to bang out one more knitting pattern before the copyright enforcement officers smash down the front door and taser everyone. And here in London, it's 8 o'clock at night, although Amazon are asking 30% for it. So, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Welcome to Latopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. Confrontation is in the air tonight, I'm afraid. No, it's, it's even stronger than that. It's fear and loathing, revulsion, hatred. Taking a lesson out of JK's book, the BBC are threatening their very own viewers, fans and licence pairs. It's not a pretty sight. Well, it is actually, with a very fetching cost on 42 stitches using number 12 needles and work in K1P1 rib for about eight rows. Men are rising up against women. Well, against those wives and girlfriends who want to drag them along to the new Sex and the City film, at least. And the world's book clubs are assailing their very own readers, demanding that any member who doesn't buy six books in a 12-month period sacrifice their firstborn son to an ancient Babylonian tree spirit called Gob. Actually, I made that last one up. But that doesn't make it wrong. Yes, it does. So, tonight on Latopia After Dark, we're focusing on things we hate, things they hate, and things things hate. It's one great big hate fest. The big question we're asking tonight is, love or hate? Which makes the better book? If the devil gets the best tunes, does he also have the best stories? And if drama is all about things going wrong, then why do we love love stories so much? Here to help me untangle the yarn and generally get things straight are, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Borman, from the Isle of Man, writer and marketing consultant John Quirk, from Oxford, England, prize-winning children's writer Susie Day, and from England's West Country, writer and lecturer Dave Bartram. Dave, a lot of manly men knit, and it's no shame to admit it. How in touch with your inner crisscross cable with twists are you? Ah, uh, ooh. <laughs> I- I'm fairly in touch with my inner bitch. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, great. Like, lots, lots of potential for that tonight, I think. That's <laughs> probably as far as I go, I think. Yeah. Uh, John, John, Sex and the City, if we poked your eyes out with red-hot pokers, uh, burned your skin off, and rolled you around in salt for a while, do you think you might enjoy the movie? You're already too late, Peter. I've already been offered an out. The, the, the missus um, I forgot to take to see a Juno and P.S. I love you and I've been told that if I I can miss Sex in the City yeah. if I create a cinema experience at home and get them out on DVD yeah well three strikes and you're out huh yeah uh, definitely uh, Susie cheese or Time Lord you can't have both which is it going to be uh, I'm working on the basis that your average TARDIS has probably got quite a big fridge in it that might have cheese in it <laughs> So I'm going to cheat and, and, you know, how can you turn down a time lock? 
obviously not so easy to turn the, down the cheese either, is it, Susie? No. Donna, knitting or Sex in the City? Which is it going to be for you? The City, of course. I'm a big fan of the show. I can't wait to take my Manolos to the movie, and well. I couldn't knit to save my life. Well, a clear cut answer there. Hmm. Uh, not to be outdone by J.K. Rowling, the BBC has also decided to start suing its fans, or at least threatening them, when a 26 year old avid Doctor Who fan, who goes by the name of Masmataz, decided to post knitting patterns on the internet to show others how to knit cuddly versions of the villainous Ood and the adipose aliens from the current BBC series, she incurred the full wrath of the Time Lord's copyright owners. Uh, the BBC is, of course, a public body funded by licence payers, and Masmataz is indeed a licence payer. But that cut no ice with the Dark Lords of uh, Portland Place. This is how The Times put it this week. Uh, the BBC says, The Times reports, it's defending its own trademark. Although it has no intention of producing knitted Doctor Who baddies in threats that are reminiscent of KFC's attempt to sue a Yorkshire pub. For offering a family feast menu, KFC dropped the action after an outcry a year ago. Becky Hogg, the executive director of the Open Rights Group, which helped to publicise the case after trying to advise Masmatiz, said, We need to recognise that there is a difference between selling knock-off handbags in the market and fans who are making tributes and contributing to creativity in the future. So, Susie, you're our number one Doctor Who fan tonight. Um, what do you think of this? Uh, I think it's it's really just slightly pathetic, isn't it? And I don't mean uh, posting knitting patterns of a little adipose <laughs> online, because that's a perfectly legitimate way to spend your time. Thank you very much. Now, uh, for starters, uh, the important thing is, of course, that it's BBC Worldwide, not the BBC. So it's nothing to do with the actual production people. It's um, uh, the people, the commercial end of the BBC, who are yeah. clearly jumping up and down. But the, the strange thing seems to be that uh, the big problem was her pattern was used or, or reported to be being used by someone selling them on eBay for profit, whereas the patterns themselves were posted online perfectly for free. So quite why the person who posted the patterns and is not making a profit is being pursued, but an eBay seller isn't, it seems a little bit mysterious. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, this is how um, law lecturer Andres Gudemus uh, described the case on his blog, and he was actually asked um, to, to get involved, and he, he's quoting the original BBC letter. It says, and they, this is what they, they wrote to Masmatiz, we note that you are supplying Doctor Who items and using trademarks and copyright owned by the BBC. You have not been given permission to use the Doctor Who brand, and we ask that you remove from your site any designs connected to the Doctor Who. Please reply, acknowledging receipt of this email, and confirm that you will rep- remove the Doctor Who items as requested. Interesting choice of words, to say the least, says Andres. Uh, Further communication continues to stress the point that Maz's designs constitute unlicensed merchandise and that BBC Worldwide has every right to stop others from distributing their property. However, Maz is not selling merchandise. He, she, is providing a knitting design to tell others how to make their own version of the adipose. While commercial exploitation has no bearing on whether there is copyright infringement, I think it should be a huge consideration for BBC Worldwide when deciding to prosecute a fan who clearly loves the show. Donna, a legal view, please. I think the line is really between profit and not. Uh, I can paint a picture of Mickey Mouse for my own use. Actually, I've done it. and But I can't sell it without permission from the House of Mouse. I, I think it's the same way with uh, Doctor Who, which, by the way, I do not get Doctor Who. What is so appealing? I, I'm just I, horrified at the idea that anyone <laughs> could not love Doctor Who. And I, obviously, I grew up on the old bubble wrap version of it. So, uh, But these days, oh, it's so lovely. They go to, to travel yeah. in space or to history, and, and there's a 
very attractive man in a pinstripe suit. This copyright thing's quite interesting, isn't it? I was at college with a guy called John Parnell, and he uh, dressed as the Tom Baker Doctor Who. He had the coat, the scarf, the perm, everything. Nobody sued him for looking like Tom Baker. He, they could have had his wages or everything. I don't know. You earn that money as Doctor Who. Give it here. Not unreasonable. And are they going to start pursuing every single other one? If you, if you Google chocolate Dalek, you'll find a selection of fantastic-looking recipes for creations involving Swiss rolls and, and chocolate fingers as plungers and so on. You know, they're going to go after every single person who has ever had a five-year-old child make a chocolate Dalek in their kitchen. Seems a little bit extreme. A bit worried by a chocolate plunger, I have to say. That's <laughs> <laughs> just put a very disturbing image in my head. <laughs> Sorry, lowered the tone already. Do apologise. <laughs> I mean, there's, there is an important issue here, really, isn't there? I mean, it's, it's, it's where, where do you draw the line? And Donna, I suppose you're, you're saying if there's commercial exploitation, that's where the line is drawn. But um, actually, this particular legal an- analysis, and of course it was um, it's subject to UK law here, um, I mean, he's, he's suggesting here, this particular lecturer whose opinion was consulted, is he's saying, concluding the BBC may not have a straightforward case if they decide to sue, and they could very well lose. And he's saying that, as I understand it at least, and I'm by no means an expert, he's saying that on the basis that what she's done is take, take, take something that certainly did belong to them, but she's reinterpreted it in a creative way, and there could well be copyright in what she has created. I think it's that's huge... right, and she wasn't selling it, no. so I think that she may be bulletproof. Mm. Mm. I think it's a huge PR own goal by uh, the BBC taking this stance. Maybe the BBC were about to produce a whole range of knitted Doctor Who items <laughs> and they're just really pissed that people can make them for themselves. I, I, I just love the idea of the House of Mouse. What, what? Is America on the same planet as, as the rest of the world? I'm really bothered by I that. I live in the state that houses of course you do. mouse and all things mouse related, so we have to be mouse obsessed here. They're we everywhere. They're incontinent. Horrible things. <laughs> I stayed in digs once where this guy thought there was a special nutty grain in his cereals. It took him a week to work out it was mouse food. <laughs> I actually did things. a lovely painting of Mickey Mouse that's hanging in our playroom, but as long as I don't sell it, I'm pretty sure I'm fine. Yeah. Is he incontinent? Because <laughs> mice are. I just wondered. Well, he's, he's about that age, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, um, right. Well, let's get serious for a moment. Um, you've heard you've heard our, our special guest panelist tonight, Susie Day, already um, probably one of the world's leading experts in Doctor Who, from what she's been saying. Um, Susie is. Um, we're delighted to have you on on board tonight, Susie. Um, I'm just going to um, tell our listeners a little bit about you. I'm going to quote from the biography that's on your website. It says Susie Day was born in Penarth. South Wales, in possession of three older sisters, a lisp, which, which I can't detect at all, actually, and a rather unfortunate choice of first name. Now, I assume that doesn't apply to Susie, does it? So there's another name going on there somewhere. Is that right? I don't know. I, I spent uh, the entirety of my childhood having to introduce myself to people with Thuvi, which oh, right. it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't bode well for getting on with people, generally. I was quite shy as a child. I can't imagine why. Oh, dear. Um... It says you've got a BA in English Literature from Oxford University, MST in English Literature from Oxford University, and you're still grasping at a doctorate in English Literature from 
Oxford University. Um, despite this lack of imagination, it says here, and I'm sure that's not true, Susie always wanted to be a writer. At the age of eight, she co-wrote a radio play entitled Paperback Writer, based on the Beatles song, and inexplicably about a racehorse that really wanted to win the Grand National. Um, hopefully it says her mum has lost the one remaining copy. Susie's first book, Wump, in which Bill falls 632 miles down a manhole, won the BBC Children's Fiction Prize and was serialised on Radio 4 in 2004. Well, we're talking to someone tonight who uh, epitomises many, many authors' dreams. So, Susie, you're going to have to tell us a little bit about that. How did that all come about? Oh, the competition was all uh, a bit of a strange way of ending up getting into writing. I'd always been pottering away uh, secretly, you know, hiding notebooks under the bed and writing very, very terrible, rubbish, embarrassing, I'm very glad I never showed it to anyone, yeah. uh, uh, beginnings of books, which is what most people start off doing, isn't it? Um, and had sort of uh, forgotten about wanting to be a writer a little bit. And then I saw this advert for this BBC talent competition um, in amongst adverts for Let's Find the Next Exciting Weather Forecaster of the future, which apparently they run competitions for, um, and uh, gave myself a, a sort of deadline of a day. I, I thought I'd always wanted to write children's books when I was younger and, and had kind of forgotten about that as an ambition. So I thought if I, if I can think of a good idea by the end of the day, then I'll give it a bash because hmm. you only had to send in, I think, a first chapter and a synopsis of what the plot was going to be. So it seemed a feasible thing to fit in around um, failing to continue writing my doctorate. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so I came up with an idea, sent it off and, and several months later discovered that out of i think four and a half thousand people entered because wow. everyone wants to write a children's book yeah. uh, i was one of six finalists so uh we got invited down to london to meet up with mike rosen and jacqueline wilson two great icons yeah. of children's writing Very big um, names, yeah. for workshop oh yes and uh and uh, hear their fine advice and um and then we're packed off with a measly three months in which to complete the entire novel um which then had to be presented to them which uh was a, a completely terrifying task so how many words that in, in three months uh i actually managed to bang out uh i don't know the final novel's about seventy-five thousand, but i confess i actually sent them something which was completely unfinished and had a large chunk in the middle jacqueline wilson had told me the one thing you absolutely must do is write an ending to the book you can't give them an unfinished novel so so i had a large basically about a fifth of the book uh, uh -huh. had just a little separate page with a paragraph going and in this bit these things will happen and then we'll go over here and, and I'll fill it in later, which somehow I managed to, to get away with. So, yeah, I think I must have written about fifty or 60,000 words in the, the version that they finally, for mm. some reason, picked out as being the one that, that, that uh, they wanted to publish. That's good going. Yeah, that, that, yeah, I rewrote a lot of it. <laughs> the, the words you write when you're writing, you know, 5,000 words a day, some of those words aren't, aren't the very best words. 5,000 words a day is, is, um, is almost impossible to maintain for any period. I mean, how were you, because you were also studying at the time, how, how were you managing to do that? So, like, two hours sleep? No, I just didn't do any study. <laughs> oh, you didn't write? <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. No, I, I, I uh, yes, was very diligent and, and studied while I was sleeping or something. Mm, yeah, no, the, the doctorate at that point very much got, got put on the back burner. So you were the one of, of, of six. And what happened then? There was a publishing deal, I assume. Publishing deal, yeah. And the book came out in 2004 and, uh, as you said, was also serialised on Go For It on radio, uh, which was, all, you know, very strange and very exciting. It's that wonderful moment you dream of when yeah. finally there's something... With your name on the spine, yeah. sitting on the bookshelf somewhere. Yeah. So, oh, so that that really positioned you, didn't it? I mean, it, it put you on the map. I don't know. 
know about that. It was more than anything, it gave me confidence to say, oh, it's okay. okay to want to be a writer. Yeah. You know, that it's one of those ambitions that so many people have. And yeah. so many people say, oh, yes, I have a novel in me, but I haven't quite got around to buying a pen and sitting down and writing anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was it's confidence as much as anything. And, of course, when you're sending off submissions uh, to agents and to publishers to be able to say, well, and here's a copy of my first book, and mm. this is what reviewers thought of it, it, yeah, it puts you off the slush pile straight away, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, this this week, actually, uh, I mean, Doris Lessing has been saying what um, what a two-edged sword it was for her to win the Nobel Prize. I mean, was, was there anything like that as far as you were concerned? <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> Not that you've won a Nobel Prize yet, but you never know. I mean, you're young. I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I quite equated them uh, a Nobel Prize and the BBC talent. Not not in any way to uh, be disdainful of the prize that I. <laughs> but there was, there was no downside though to, to winning, as far as you're concerned. No, I don't think so. It was yeah. a great learning experience. I learned a massive amount about. Uh, you know, how long it takes as a process and how to work with editors and how to deal with someone editing your work. And it means now, you know, I feel a bit more of a seasoned professional than yeah. a, a hopeless novice, yeah. even though probably I'm somewhere in the middle, really. Um, it says here, Susie likes Arthur Ransom, Scotland, Time Lords and Cheese. I'm not sure if it's in that order. We'll find out in a moment. She lives in Oxford, hopes one day to find the off switch on the television. You junkie. Uh, Susie's hilarious and touching novel for teens, Big Woo is published by Scholastic in the UK, just been published in April, and by Scholastic in the US this summer. Um, in the US it goes by a different title, Serafina 67, um, Urgently Requires Life. I'm not, qu- not quite sure if I've got that title right. Why, why two titles? Uh, oh, ask publishers. I don't understand these things. Writers <laughs> don't have any control over that sort of thing at all. Yeah. Um, Serafina 67, Urgently Requires Life, or just Serafina 67 was the original title. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, it's the UK one that they decided they wanted something that uh, I don't know. They thought was a uh, I don't know, more more immediately teenage maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Now it's 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 got a very interesting sort of narrative format, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a blog novel, which I can imagine large numbers of people are instantly throwing up their hands in despair and going, "Oh no, the end of the world is nigh." It's all going to be in text speak and have emoticons in it and not be in sentences. And there's an element of that, but I promise you I haven't murdered the English language entirely. What what, what age group are you writing for? Uh it's 12 and upwards. Yeah, 12 to 16, I'd say. All right, 12 to 16. And I mean, how how long I mean, did you knock that off in, in 3 months or how long did that take? Uh hmm, difficult because it got rewritten so many squillions of times and so right. there are long periods where you're not really working on it i think the first draft i worked on over a period of about six months and then i must have spent about um, with various other people's assistance and guidance probably another year or so doing rewrite after rewrite um because that's how it works i just wondered at the name of the therapist in in the book there the crazy peach is there a connection <laughs> <laughs> Alas, I was not acquainted with the bearded one at the time I named <laughs> Crazy Pete. But, you know, perhaps from now on I will be picturing him if I read that name. <laughs> oh, you, you've, you've altered the book for me fundamentally now. <laughs> at an SCBWI conference uh, about a year ago, I heard an editor who was from the U.S. who had moved to the U.K. and she was suffering from a little bit of culture shock and she was talking about the differences between U.S. and U.K. And one of the things she said is that the U.K. books always have to have foil on the cover. So my question is, does your U.K. book have foil on the cover? 
It does. It does. And there was a great debate about whether or not to have foil. Uh, we must have gone through hundreds of different versions of the cover and, and what color. Uh, these Now it, it's black with some foil on it. Black's a very controversial decision if you're writing for teenage girls. And so I think the foil is intended to be some sort of sop to uh, uh, people who like pink girly things with cupcakes on. Um, but yes, the US one does not have any foil on it. That's true, though. The, the design approach in terms of covers for teenage fiction in particular is radically different in the US and the UK. They just yeah, have a sort of totally different approach to it. I just wondered if it tied in with the Doctor Who fascination, tinfoil and early Doctor Who sets. Makes a lot yeah, of the, sense. The, the next one's going to be made out of egg boxes with uh, uh, bubble wrap on the front of it, obviously. Special edition, yeah. And chocolate plunges. Susie, how old were you when you uh, entered the BBC competition? I was 27, I think. Uh, but yeah, it took it took yeah, 27 when I entered the competition. I think I was 29 when the book came out. Uh, yeah, I think. I can't remember. Getting too old. I know, it's disturbing. I was worrying. The, the doctorate that I was not writing while I was writing the first book um, is about Virginia Woolf. And uh, she said you shouldn't publish anything until the age of 30. Ever think of doing that. So um, I cheated. Just about. Did you finish your doctorate? It's sitting in my airing cupboard. Is that a doctorate? <laughs> Is that the BBC copyright that was a police? Who, <laughs> who was knitting the Dalek? <laughs> it's the fax monster. <laughs> right, slight technical there, so don't worry about this. Um, great. Well, Susie, you're very, very welcome. Delighted you're, you're with us um, for tonight's show. And let's move on to talk about sex. Or at least sex, sex in the city. I've been wondering why many of my male friends suddenly seem to have left town for a few days, and now I know. <laughs> the film of the long-running HBO series Sex in the City premiered in London this week. Not New York, but London. Um, if you live stateside, you'll have to wait until, I think, uh, the 30th of May for that dubious pleasure. Uh, like a lot of recent chick flicks, I could mention 27 jet addresses and Juno, but there are lots more. Sex in the City seems to repel men as powerfully as it attracts women. Why? Well, John Cass in the Chicago Tribune offers a clue. I can still hear the terrified cries, he says, of men from across the sea from England. Men scared stiff by the new Sex in the City movie premiere. And such cries are cries of warning to men in America, where this evil film will debut in a few weeks. One of the first shrieks of woe came from a regular guy named Phil. His warning was posted in the Times online as a comment on the review of the film that premiered the other day in London. I don't think Sex and the City is just for girls, wrote Phil. I'm a reasonably well-adjusted bloke and I'm looking forward to seeing the film with my girlfriend. I am then looking forward to poking my eyes out with red-hot pokers, burning my skin off and rolling around in salt for a while. Phil Mann, Newcastle on time. He's not alone, writes John Cass. Millions of men are sick about this movie based on a TV show about four terrifying, rich, ageing, elitist women who whine about sex and men and purchase $700 pairs of shoes to feel better about themselves. What guy wouldn't love such a movie? Wow, what a reception. Um, the characters are shallow, superficial, slutty and self-absorbed. Uh, what do women see in this series, Donna? That's a description of what I thought most men were looking for. Male <laughs> <laughs> fans. Damn, she stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> my husband and I uh, actually both watch it. 
Um, he's he, he thinks it's funny, um, and and he seems to enjoy it. But um, we have kind of a, a truce. I watch Entourage with him, which uh-huh. is kind of the male version of Sex in the City. And he watches Sex in the City with me. I think they're both wonderful and just have a little different perspective. And it's also, it's funny. It describes what a lot of women wish they could say. It has designer shoes. Designer shoes. It even introduced the concept of he's just not that into you. What's not to like? Yeah. yeah. Another big bestseller, actually. John, give us some, give us a, a male perspective here. Oh, um, I've got a, a, an admission to make. I actually uh, have watched it a few times. Oh, my God. A few and, times. Um, yeah, it's, it, it usually when I'm sort of in having a cup of tea with with the wife, and it's it's all right. I've, I've got to hold my hand up and say uh, I don't mind it. Well, Sophie Radici in the the Guardian um, a couple of days ago said the, the the reasons it seems are legion that most men don't like it. Imagine they tell us how insulted women would feel if there was a glossy show in which a group of men spent their time discussing the size of their girlfriend's breasts and what they were like at giving blowjobs in a rather slick and light-hearted way. They may have a point, two and a half she says. Men. That's the show Two and a Half Men. It's the very definition of it. Oh, well. That's funny. Oh, well. well. It's already been done, hasn't it? Psychiatrist William Godley, who's studied the way men speak to each other, say men are much less likely to reveal intimate details about their sex lives than women speaking to other women. Susie? Are you asking me to reveal details of my sex life? <laughs> well, you can if you want. It's world, world exclusive here, isn't it? A famous children's author. But um, no, I mean, uh, she's got a point, hasn't she, really? I mean, there's one, one rule for sexism as far as women are concerned and another for men. Or am I wrong? No, I don't think that's the case at all. Yes, Sex in the City stands out to some extent because it's much more explicit about female sexuality than any other show that we've seen before or since. But I think that's more in a, a corrective sense as opposed to being something that is uh, as terribly shocking. You know, the, the, here we are uh, with a group of women talking about sex and sexuality and being sexual in a show that's directly aimed at a female audience as opposed to a male audience. And that's something that, that we haven't really seen before. And I think, uh, as Donna said, there are equivalents in uh, uh, cinema and in TV where men are perfectly comfortable talking about uh, explicit things. I mean, the one that popped into my head just then was the Doug Lyman film, Swingers, which just you know seems equally comfortable um, having a group of guys sitting around talking about that and, and I, as a woman, don't feel mm. frightened or threatened by that. Um, yeah. I don't see the problem, really. Yeah. Film. Cal Rastra make, makes that point in the chat room. She said, Larry David discusses everything about sex with his agent, just the same as in Sex and the City. I guess that's true. It goes back as far as Benny Hill. You think that was really a feminist show? <laughs> Good point. Don't, don't you think, though, that it's just a rather clever kind of reverse psychology exploitation of everybody's hang-ups about sex? It's just the, they've just spun it through 180 degrees to get people to buy into it and go, oh, yes, that's what it is. And it's still the same old tosh, just presented in a different package. Surely. No offence. There's been, there's been so many of these shows from the male point of view, and it's the, really the only one that's ever shown the women's point of view. It was the first, and I think that's why it was so popular. Is this a realistic portrayal of the sexual behaviour and lifestyles of many urban Americans, truly? I mean, is, is it, is it real, really real, realistic or into uh, fantasy land here, do you think? Well, I, I think it's been a long time since I was single, but um, I, I would say that it's an exaggeration. Uh, mm. I don't think women speak quite as frankly uh, about sex, but probably more frankly than men think they do. Mm. And um, I, I think that uh, American women probably aren't quite as slutty as uh, they are sex in the city, but, uh, you know, uh, certainly we, we talk about uh, things more frankly than maybe our mothers did. Yeah. The whole 
something obviously has a huge element of fantasy about it. I mean, the idea that Carrie Bradshaw writes this one column and therefore has enough money to live in this fantastic Manhattan apartment, buy these amazing shoes and go out for cocktails all the time, uh, you know, that on its own is pushing reality just a little tiny bit. Yeah. Kalasha says, I heard that Sex and the City is a gay man's fantasy of what women are like. Isn't it just Can a I bunch of caricatures, though? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of caricatures? Yeah, probably. It's a, it's a bit of caricature. Um, each one represents kind of a type of woman. But it's just fun. It's a show. It's fiction. It's to make you laugh. Well, it's certainly surfing the new wave of chick films and chick lit. Always money to be made there. Um... Well, what are your views on Sex and the City? I think we can all agree that um, none of us particularly likes being exposed to sitting through endless minutes of television advertising. And as we reported just a couple of weeks ago, but nobody else really seemed to pick this up, um, a momentous milestone was reached recently when Google's advertising revenue overtook ITV for the first time. This is uh, something that's got to be of interest to everyone, particularly writers, because it's, in, it's you know, a big sea change in the media out there. Now television is trying to fight back and has taken a page from Google. Soon to reach your, your screen, something they're calling contextual ads, advertisements that match relevant moments in the shows they interrupt. For example, in the movie Hitch, Will Smith suffers an allergic reaction to his food. Hold that scene in your mind for a few seconds, and then bang, they stop for commercial, and here is that advertisement for allergy medication. Now, the New York Times explained how this is going to work this week. Ever smile while watching a movie on TV because, say, you just saw the scene from The Godfather when Vita Corleone leaves his office at the Genco olive oil factory and a commercial comes on for Bertoli olive oil. Turner Entertainment Networks wants to turn those coincidences into sales opportunities. Um, and they showed an example in the recent unveiling of this um, as part of uh, their presentation after the conclusion of a scene from the movie Anchorman in which Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd and Steve Carroll discuss love. The first spot in the next commercial break could be for the eHarmony.com online dating service. Um, What's it going to be like when advertisements try to target us like this on, on, on television? Is it just, just going to drive us away more and more, do you think, from television, Dave? Oh, I'm probably not the right one to ask. I don't actually watch a huge amount of television anymore. Mm. Um, the advertising does leave you rather cold. I, I think we're probably going to end up with subliminal advertising like they tried to push on in the 70s. But it will drive people away because I think the more insistent it becomes and the more intrusive it becomes and the more personal it becomes, you know, paranoia is a part of the human psyche and people will start to get a bit twitchy when they feel things are being directed, you know, personally at them. Mm, mm. Well, John, you're, you know, you're a marketing person as well as being a writer. I mean, I, I guess this makes some marketing sense, but isn't it going to just worry and, you know, um, intimidate the audience from, instead of reach them more, do you think? It's, it's, I think it certainly will. Um, in terms of being a good idea, it, it's certainly with merit. I can't believe it's taken this long for them to actually um, catch on to it. Um, well, they have to go through all their enormous great back library of films, apparently, and just, you know, and find the, the olive oil moment and the acne <laughs> medication moment and then flag it up on the computer for, for advertisers to jump into. It's quite a big job. Yeah. I mean, there's, oh, there's so, such a high percentage of TV advertising, particularly in the UK, is, is pure dross. And um, I can't really see how this is going to help it get any mm, better. Mm. Um, but in, in terms of, of actually being a marketing tool for, for companies... Um, 
certainly short term. I think there's some great potential there just mm. to see how it works, sort of how it pans out in the future. An article in this week's Economist paints a depressing picture for the once highly successful but now very beleaguered book club. Uh, not so long ago, the book club was thriving. Authors didn't really make much money out of them, uh, but publishers could profitably increase their print runs, and authors stood to slowly gain more readers um, over time. And this is what The Economist says now. Every year across Spain, the article begins, book club salesmen knock on the doors of thousands of households. Those who fall for the pitch are then visited 21 times a year by agents from Circulo de Lectores, who bring catalogues of titles, take orders and deliver books. The club is owned by Bertelsmann, which of course is one of the biggest um, publishing companies in the world, a German media firm which dominates the market and earns revenues of more than 2 billion euros, which is $3.1 billion, from clubs in 21 countries. Many are largely unaltered since the 1970s, but that's about to change. Bertelsmann is selling its American clubs and has put the rest under strategic review. Book clubs are in for a radical overhaul at the very least, and some people think they are headed for extinction. Um, it doesn't seem so, such a long time ago when, um, when I was a member of this club, that club, and all kinds of things. But now, um, books don't arrive by the post anymore. Is it just me, Susie? Or, I mean, do you belong to a book club too? No, I've never belonged to a book club. And I remember always seeing the, the little flyers that used to come in. Yeah. Come in, thinking what a bizarre idea it was that anyone should tell me what it was I was going to read next. Um, <laughs> I've never really understood the appeal of book clubs. And I mean, particularly, you know, in, in the digital age, I sort of wonder how, you know, they can possibly continue. We have high street bookshops that are booming massively and have been for the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. We have on, uh, online opportunities to, to make informed choices as opposed to having someone giving you something that you don't necessarily want. Uh, they do seem... A bit of a strange idea to me, I have to say. I actually enjoy the Writer's Digest book club, but I really hate it when they send me stuff. You know, if you forget to yeah. send the uh, declination, if they'd uh, get that feature out, I think they'd be, they'd be more popular. That being said, I'd love to see my book, The Writer's Guide to the Courtroom, and The Writer's Digest book club. But uh, I think it is a good opportunity for budding authors to uh, get some reputation. Well, apparently, yes, I mean, this article does say that some specialist clubs do have a feature. Um, there's uh, a club, uh, Bertelsmann's Club, Black Expressions in America, apparently, is, is, which is aimed at black women, apparently doing quite well. And also Mosaico, which is a Spanish language club. Um, so, you know, um, special interests and so on, I suppose, are, are still doing well. But the whole general concept of the book club seems to be something that's, I don't know, died really in the past 10 years. Um, John, have you ever been a book club member? Yeah, I was. Uh, I used to subscribe to Writers News and Writing Magazine and they had a, a sort of a, a writer's book club um, where each month they'd send you a little pamphlet with all these different books about writing on yeah. and um, I was sort of in my early 20s at the time so at that stage it was it was a fantastic uh, uh, tool but um, I haven't not for a long long time now I, I, mm. I think their use is as you say in, in sort of specialist areas then maybe but I think in, in general in general fiction um, I think the day is gone to be honest as I understand it going back to the the idea of specialist Specialist books uh, and, and book clubs, yeah. uh, romantic fiction, um, Mills and Boone or Harlequin as they are in the US, as uh, apparently their, their whole book club end, which used to be how they made most of their sales, has declined just like all of the other book clubs. Mm. But they've replaced it now with a, a direct online uh, community, which allows people to participate and recommend books to one another. And so it, the, 
there's a way for the book clubs, I think, to rescue themselves by taking the opportunities that, that online media give them. The thing, the, the thing, that, the same kind of idea, but make it a bit more interactive. Yeah, but the thing that you know irritated um, Donna <clears throat> about book clubs is actually one of their great virtues that um, you do sign up for a particularly long period of time. You're committed to take a certain number of books, and if you don't get back to them within a certain period, they'll send you the default selection in any case, meaning probably that you accumulate more books than you really want to. But certainly from the publisher's point of view, and to some extent from the author's point of view as well. Um, you know, it did get more books out there. And book club sales, you know, when uh, in the years when I was writing, for example, I mean, book club sales were always significant because they could they could actually shift quite large numbers of books. Um, you never made much money on them in the royalty statements, but it did allow the publishers to, you know, to do another print run, um, to reduce the unit cost, and sometimes to bump you up into a higher royalty rate too. So authors did benefit relatively indirectly. Dave, do you have any fond memories of book clubs at all? Yeah, it's through a book club that I was introduced to the remarkable work of Raymond E. Feist, which I would happily wipe my bottom on. It's the most <laughs> awful book I have ever read in my life. Was, was this a default selection or what? Uh, what was the book club? Was, You're going to have to tell us more about this. It sounds you ordered it, didn't you, Dave? It, I did, yeah. It was the Fantasy yeah. and Science Fiction Book Club, and because they had some, as always, they had some groovy special offers to tempt you in, and then these dismal selections every month. And I thought, I'll read this guy. I see a lot of his books around. It was called Tear of the Gods, and it was it was the most god awful thing I have ever written in my, ever read in my life. It was just dire, bloody, bollical. And I thought, how is he getting away with this stuff? Really shocking. You know, it was. It was. He should have always. They, they, we should have asked him for royalties back. He should have been paying us. It was dreadful. But yeah, that's that's my and another. Oh, numerous crap books I read from book clubs. But um, and they were printed on terribly was, thin, cheap paper as well, weren't they? Yeah, they're always pretty yeah. ropey looking things. Yeah. yeah. Now, unfortunate, but there you go. I'm sure there are lovely books for sale in book clubs, but mm. I didn't see many of them. I actually like what Scholastic does with the kids' books. They do the book fairs, and they also send the flyers home with the kids, and it's a little fundraiser for the school. And Very good point. We are way overrun with Scholastic books as a result. Um, I really enjoy that because we get uh, good books for good prices, and yeah. the kids get to experience reading more than they probably would otherwise. Yeah, yeah. that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, so hopefully uh, long, you know, more power to the Children's Book Club. Um, Publishing News is reporting this week that uh, publishers are reacting in the UK, reacting very angrily to what one senior but obviously unnamed uh, executive, publishing executive, has described as a, a crude attempt by Amazon to increase its discount. Amazon is going round from publisher to publisher, says the executive, with extortionate demands. And if it does manage to get a figure from one publisher, it's then going back to the first house and saying, X has agreed to such and such. So what we see is Amazon attempting, says this unnamed person, a strategy of world domination. Mm. Um, and some facts and figures from this article by Roger Tycombe. Um They already have in the UK 15% of the market. Um, and it's estimated that if Amazon carries on growing at this rate, it's going to have 30% of the market in three years. Um, publishers believe there's a real danger that bookshops will start closing as a result. Um, Amazon is going to be in a position of such dominance that they will be able to dictate terms and destabilize the market. 
Well, I, I, how do we feel about Amazon now? I mean, Amazon has always been such a nice company to deal with, hasn't it? But um, putting our author's hats on for a moment, do we feel that they're still the sort of big, gentle giant, the benign presence that they've, they've always been on the net? Uh, Susie? It's really difficult because, yeah, as, like you say, as a, a reader, um, you know, you want to love them because they sell you cheap things. And then as a writer, you want to have enough money to live on to write more books. That would be nice, yeah. They start trampling all over your ability to do that. Um, yeah. It does get a bit difficult. And, they, I mean, they're having a run of bad press. There's this whole issue regarding the print-on-demand books and whether or not yeah. uh, they're, they're removing people's right to print via anything apart from the Amazon own brand version of that, um, trying to stop retailers selling discount books through their own sites, publishers themselves doing that. Um, and now this this rumour, wherever it's come from, of, mm. uh, of further dodgy practices. And it, it does make you sort of question that moment where your, your finger hovers over the buy it now button and think, well, but, but at the same time, they have this vast stock. They have so many things available that are hard to find on the high street, let alone in a, in a smaller bookshop. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm torn between my reader hat and my writer hat in mm. a pathetic and probably will just continue to buy things from them because I have no soul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You're yeah. a writer, of course you don't. <laughs> Absolutely. I just ordered from Amazon today. Um, I, I like them. They're convenient. Um, I ordered books for the Latopia Book Club today. Cool. Um, speaking of book clubs, um, I think it's inevitable that a corporate powerhouse like that. It, they're going to try to flex their newly found muscles. Um, mm. They're going to get slapped with an antitrust suit soon and mm. back down. Um, I think a competitor is eventually going to fill a niche that they've somehow missed because they're overstepping their bounds. If you look at Toys R Us a few years ago, they were um, in, in the bully business. They were bullying people into uh, uh, non-competitive pricing and exclusives and as a result, I think some other toy stores uh, passed them by, and I think they're suffering now. Um, I'm a little bit with Susie. Um, as, as, a, as a reader, it's an invaluable uh, resource, um, particularly on sort of old out-of-print books. Uh, I'm a member of a, of a couple of sort of book clubs, and and um, the, the recent uh, choices have been sort of well out of, well out of print. One was a Ross McDonald uh, crime novel from 1962. Mm. And I went on Amazon and had it within about two days. So it's it's invaluable. But then as a writer, you have to worry about um, the power it's getting and mm. uh, the demands it's making. Um, it's I, I'm, I'm actually at the point where I'm if I, if I could afford to, I'd do it more often. I'm actually sort of making the decision not not to buy through Amazon mm. and uh, trying to stick to the bookstores. Book I wonder if that's going to become more widespread, actually. Um, maybe it won't, as, as far as authors are concerned. And maybe, you know, as Susie says, I mean, you've got to, um, you've got to you know, look after the money because Amazon always have, has a good price. I mean, Dave, you, you, you don't really uh, patronise Amazon, do you? you? You prefer to go to the local bookstore. Yeah, I do, because they get things in in a couple of days and it's much more fun and... Uh it's a little bit like uh, Bernard Black's bookstore in Black Books as well, which is quite nice. Uh, and uh, Amazon are becoming like um, to authors, like Tesco's Art of Carrot yeah. producers. You know, they gradually corner the, the, the distribution so that they can then force down the price. And I think if the more we play into their hands, the, hard, the worse it's going to get for everybody. Because once you control the distribution of a product, um, then you can start dictating all sorts of things. I yeah. think it's, it's, it's a very dangerous game to actually play into their rather uh, slippery grasp, I think. You know, you can't go wrong selling things cheap. Writing in The Guardian this week, 
Stuart Evers points out just how hard it is to create a convincing first-person narrator. And yet, the immediacy and emotional impact of first-person can't be bettered. This is what he says. Um, a third of the way through Siri Hustvelt's new novel, The Sorrows of an American, I began to lose heart. Despite its winning mixture of shady secrets, compulsive behaviours and mazy Brooklyn brownstones, something just didn't feel right about it. In a scene on page 97, it became clear why. The narrator, Eric Davidson, has asked Miranda out on a date. When she turns up, his reaction is jarring. And this is a quote from the uh, narrator. I felt choked with admiration. End quote. Not desire, says Stuart, not nerves, but admiration. It's a comment no man in life or literature would ever make about a woman he sexually desires. This is only one example, says Stuart, of a series of false notes Hussfeld strikes in the betrayal of her male narrator. Collectively, it undermines Eric's voice, no longer believable, neither as a man or a character. His lack of credibility ultimately fails the story he's been employed to tell. But the issue here, at least as far as I'm concerned, is not about the problems of writing from the perspective of a member of the opposite sex, though they are legion, uh, but the difficulties of writing well in the first person at all. Now, Susie, you've recently finished writing um, your book in the first person. How challenging was that? Well, it's, it's first person and also multiple first persons as well, because you oh. have Serafina67's blog and then all the people who are commenting on it are also effectively giving you their own miniature little first person uh, narratives in, in themselves. And all you get of them is that voice. So that whole key issue, with you know, the fundamental thing about a first person narrative of getting a tone of voice, getting a way of speaking, um, became extra significant because that's all you get from the characters in a blog novel you don't have any description you don't have anything else to hang your sort of mental hat on other than the way that they speak and so making them distinctive and and having specific to themselves uh cadences that they speak type um is kind of essential to it so but it, it was that was part of the kind of entertainment for me writing it was writing something that was amazingly challenging that, that was that was but everything i mean you, you had multiple first persons but it you know but that means obviously there was no third person at all there's no editorializing at all. um no nothing at all are you ever going to do that again or, or? Uh, i'm not writing another blog novel at the moment i think uh, right now i've said well i need to say on that subject but uh, uh so what i'm writing at the moment is is a slightly more straightforward first person narrative but actually does have some elements of multiple. Yeah, no, I'm making. All right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just realising now. Mm, it's yeah. another Susie Dunn again, novel. Even mm. more complicated. But then my first book was a, a third person, much more traditional sort of. You know that that um, not quite dear reader, but that third yeah. person omniscient narrator who's guiding you through the story. Yeah. Um, and yeah, first person, you get to do that great thing of having a really unreliable narrator, which is so much fun to write, where the, everything is between the lines, that, you know, what's actually on the page and what's really going on is, is not quite the same thing. And that's fun to read, I think, so it's fun to write. It's a bit of a Faustian bargain, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, you don't have to really bother too much about point of view because you're right into the protagonist's head right from the beginning, and hopefully we can empathise and we get emotionally involved much more, um, much more quickly, usually. Um, but at the same time, it's very, it's very limiting. Uh, too many sentences beginning with I, uh, too many internal monologues in order to try, try and explain things. Uh, Stuart says here, another problem is a, a temptation to succumb to didacticism. It's very hard to show, he says, very hard to show, not tell, when you know a character can tell you everything they see and feel. Can you 
identify with that, Susie? Well, they can do, but uh, they don't have to tell you everything that they see. They, uh, the reader doesn't have to buy into everything they're telling you as opposed to showing you. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it's quite as, as black and white as that. Mm. You do have a fair amount of, you know, it's, it's the decisions that you make. And actually some of those, of, of the, the curtailment of it. I was thinking of, of a great example um, being the Zoe Heller novel, Notes on a Scandal. Uh, it's a really cracking first-person narrative where the whole point of it is that it's a very unlikable uh, narrator who has absolutely no idea what story she's telling because she thinks she's telling you about how terribly unfair the world is and has been to her um, and, and, you know, she's terribly maligned and, in fact, she's proving herself to be a bit of a nutter way through. And you can do that and that's, that's the classic showing mm. as opposed to telling. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Dave, you're a great first person, third person reader and writer? Uh, it's interesting because I did the classic thing that I think all writers do, started off in omniscient third, then moved to close third and now trying to write in first person and I think the problem with with first person I just read uh, The Road of the Dead by somebody, uh, it was very good actually um, and he got around all sorts of things with the, the the narrator had this kind of ability to project his mind and pick up the thoughts of others and so on and that worked quite well uh, but you do get a bit bored with the introspection and the navel gazing and that is the problem with first person, I think as, if you keep it immediate and pasty and it's about reactions to things, and you avoid the navel-gazing, you're probably okay. But there is that that danger that you can get kind of a bit bogged down in in the solipsism of first person if you're not too careful, I would guess. In kids' books, you see a lot more first person than for adults, I think. For kids, it's more compelling and immediate. And I think the voice is usually stronger in in first person. For for me, I'm probably an unusual writer. For me, first person is more natural than third person. Um, So I tend to write more in first person, maybe because lawyers are so self-absorbed. I'm not sure. Devastating moment of self-insight there, Donna. (laughs) It's charging by the hour that does it, I think. (laughs) Peter, as as an agent, do you have a preference on uh, first or third? Um, I, 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 uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much for asking that question, actually. (laughs) How long have I got? Um, I I do like first person, um, even though the author may not ultimately write in first person. I, I like first person, and perhaps it's a, it's a good way to start out, especially when the author is exploring the dynamics of the protagonist's world, and particularly their, their mind and how they see things. Because um, I think it, it gets you right in there. And, it you know, almost inevitably, it gets the... Um, the reader right into the protagonist's head as well. Um, it's terribly limiting. Um, you know, you, you do have to find all kinds of devices... Um, as I, th- I think you, you've done, haven't you, Susie, with not just one uh, first person, but with multiple persons to, you know, to convey what's happening on the other side of town, what's happening somewhere else, um, in order to compensate for the fact that, you, you know, your protagonist is not omniscient. Oh, absolutely. And again, because it's a, a blog, which is kind of mirroring the structure of a diary, you can do that thing of, of you know, skipping ahead a week or having three things happen in quick succession all on the same day, because mm. that's the other big challenge with with 
first person as opposed to third person, you don't get that filmic sense of, and then cut to these three people who are over yeah. there doing something completely different. Um, you know, the, the, the danger, I think, when you're writing something first person is you, you get sort of plodding and there's a temptation to describe. And that, then I went over here and then I had a cup of tea and then I did, you know, as if you can't just kind of skip from scene to scene. And that's when it starts to get turgid and scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other, um, the other, just thinking about this, um, thank you very much, John. Um, it's it's dead easy to control point of view, um, which often is is not necessarily a challenge for authors, but you do find it drifts around irritatingly too, too often. Those are those are things that can give a reader, you know, not even necessarily a, a conscious um, understanding of what's going wrong. It's just the readers, you know, if point of view does drift around, readers go, oh, I don't know, I, I'm not enjoying it so much anymore. So you know, it, it's it's a dead easy way to. Um, you know, to zap that problem. Well, I think ultimately every writer does actually have to come to terms with the point of view and control it absolutely exquisitely. Um, but the other thing it does too is um, it, it merges uh, the editorial voice and um, the, uh, the character's voice, the protagonist's voice. Um, and again, that's something that I think subconsciously um, readers want to, to know who the, the the writer is. They you know they, they have a relationship irrespective of whatever relationship they may have with the characters in the the story. They also have, and again probably on a subconscious level, a relationship with the author. They want to know that they're in good hands. They want to know that the author is going to look after them, entertain them, tell them a story in a very competent way, and they also. So I think take sort of uh, judgments, probably subconsciously as well. Like, do I like this this writer? Um, do I trust them? Are they saying things to me in a way that that I will understand and um, appreciate, or are they trying to sell me something? I think all these all these things are subconscious factors at work in the reader's mind. Um, if you're writing in the first person, because the editorial voice is exactly the same as your protagonist's voice, you you know you don't have to to go to that territory. Does that make any sense uh, to you, Susie? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and good night. <laughs> well, I, I could continue with a very long explanation of that doctoral thesis, but you really probably don't want me to do that. I promise you, you don't. Which do you prefer writing in, Donna, first or third? Definitely first. Um, I, I prefer it. I, I tend to fall into it more naturally. I did, I've written a couple things in, in third, but I like first. There, there seems to be a, from what I picked up on the internet and, and reading books, seems to be a, an aversion almost um, to first-time writers or sort of unpublished writers using first person from, from agents and from publishers. Is that something you'd agree with, Peter? Um, no, I don't think so. No, I think I think whatever works, really. You know, I mean, I think there's, there's nothing worse than the first person that doesn't work um, for reasons that I've explained. But no, I think you know, I mean, if, if it, whatever floats your boat. There is funny talking about first and whether it works or not. There's a lovely book by Ursula Le Guin called um, Voices. It's a children's book that I got for Christmas actually, and it's fantastically written. And you never tire of the narrator's voice for a moment. Mm. It just holds your attention all the way through. It's not a fast-paced book. It's not, you know, full of action and all those kinds of things. But it's full of character and insight and thoughtfulness. And you just never for a minute tire of of the narrator's voice. And I think, well, she's a fantastic writer anyway, obviously. But 
it's it's just a kind of a masterclass in how to hold somebody's attention with uh, first person, I think. I tend to, to read first person, too. Um, I was thinking about who I like to read. I, I read Katie Camillo, who did some wonderful first person, like Winn-Dixie, um, Sue Grafton, Stephen King, Janet Ivanovich, Rick Reardon, Lemony Snicket, uh, all first person writers, excellent first person writers. Um, I think it, it holds my attention better, and I just find it more compelling. Was that uh, you opening the old wine bottle, Donna? It's a bit early in the day. <laughs> I could hear somebody uncorking in the background. There. No, that, that, that was me, sorry. That was, that was, <laughs> that was me in the bourbon, sorry. Sound of uncorking. <laughs> it's always it's not good. Me. It's still afternoon here. Well, that's what I the, thought. The, the world swims into focus. It's wonderful. We started out by asking um, a question, the big question, which is love or hate? Which makes the better book? Susie, you're our guest panellist tonight. Which side do you come down on? Oh, well, I'm the last person you should ask, really. Well, or, or, I can't come down on one or the other because it's got to be both. You need both. Surely you need both. You need both ideally in the same package in a Mr. Rochester kind of way. It's sort of off-putting and yet strangely sexy. Good answer. <laughs> Donna. Definitely hate. I like serial killers and vampires yeah. and paranormal. It's way better than love story, but all of those stories still have some sort of balance. Love of someone or something that balances out the hate. Yeah. Well, so, uh, John, uh, Donna is saying that um, the devil actually doesn't just have the best tunes, he also has the best stories. Do you agree? We, we all need love, but uh, yeah, I've got to come down with Donna on that one. Okay. It's definitely hate. So it's two against one at the moment. Dave, looks like you've got the casting vote. Oh, the power. Uh, yeah, speaking of the devil, he came in earlier. Uh, yeah, it's, um... Often does on the Friday night, I understand. It does, actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then he uncorks. Exactly. No, it's... <laughs> no, I think, I, I really hate all that kind of, uh, George Lucas schlock about hate and suffering and everything. Hates this lovely kind of emotion that keeps you warm at night and, you know, keeps things cooking over nicely for you. I, I think hate provides motivations that are very interesting and challenging and yeah. I don't think love is actually hate's counterpart I think desire is what drives people more than love and I think they're not quite the same sides of uh, or different sides of the same coin I think hate is a more challenging thing and love is it's kind of it's an obvious road to go down isn't it really but hate is fun mm. uh, sexy yeah I wouldn't go that far <laughs> <laughs> unsexy you want some unsexy hate in your book yeah hate, hate is is i wouldn't like to put sex and hate together i think that's a bad combination love and sex good combination hate and sex bad combination just summed up sex in the city haven't you uh, let, and let's not get back on that again anyway um it's been an intriguing conversation tonight i want to to thank uh, Dave Bartram, uh, Donna Ballman, John Quirk, and our very special panellist this evening, Susie Day. Um, I've had a fantastic time. I hope you have too. Good night, everybody. Let's do it all again next week. Bye bye. Okay, good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Well, that was the show, and this is The Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. 
Latopia is one of the oldest and, dare we say, most interesting writing communities on the net. If you're serious about your writing, join us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found on our podcast website. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com and you're there. Our podcast site is packed full of useful information such as step-by-step instructions showing you how to subscribe to our podcasts using iTunes. You can also sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox just as soon as each show is released. We're more than keen to have your comments, feedback and suggestions for future shows or guests. You'll find simple instructions on how to do all these things on the website. And if you've enjoyed the show, do spread the word and share it with a friend. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.